Hello and welcome to the good friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Talbot. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this time we're digging into some more mythos deities with a couple from Ramsey Campbell being Daeloth and Ihort. Two for the price of one. Yes, sir. Before we get into all that good stuff, what is going on? Indeed, something wicked this way comes. We're getting close to that time of year again when the next issue is going to be out. We're up to issue eight this time. Yeah, the Blasphemous Tome is almost here. You know, it only feels like a couple of days since I finished doing some layout work on a previous issue. Because it was. I know. (laughs) (laughs) And if you back us on Patreon... By the end of November 2021, at the $3 level, you'll get a Christmas card from Jackson Elias. And at the $5 level, you get the Christmas card and the hard copy of The Blasphemous Tome, Issue 8. Something else is slowly working its way over the horizon, so I hear. Yes, we have the next Weekend with Good Friends planned. So this is the gaming convention that is organised by our wonderful listeners on our Discord server. And I will put a link to the Discord server in the show notes, so if you're not already on there, you can get on there in plenty of time for the convention. But the convention itself will take place between the 18th to the 20th of February 2022. So keep that weekend free, and we will post some regular updates on the website and, of course, share them here. And Paul, you're going to drag me this year. Yeah, hopefully so. That's on the 4th of December 2021 in London. And I'll be on a panel with the Smart Party. I'm not quite sure what the topic is yet, but I'm sure it's going to be good. (laughs) I admire your confidence there, Paul. Well, you know, Gaz and Baz are in charge, so uh, I'll leave it to them to come up with something good. (laughs) I'll just bumble on. I don't know. I'm also on a panel with Lynn Hardy and Ben Aronovich talking about the new Rivers of London role-playing game, which will be out early 2022. And now on to our main topic, Mythos Deities, Daeloth and Ihort. This is the latest instalment in our regular series on the deities of the Cthulhu Mythos. And this time we thought we'd turn our attention to Ramsey Campbell and some of his creations. Campbell has created a number of Mythos deities, and rather than try to tackle them all in a single episode, we thought we'd pick out two of them and then come back to some of the others later on. But before we do that, let's just talk a little bit about who Ramsey Campbell is. Well, Ramsey Campbell is regularly named as the greatest living British horror writer. His career encompasses seven decades. Count them, seven. Hundreds (laughs) of short stories and more than 30 novels. He just doesn't stop. I'm a huge fan of Campbell. I've been reading his stuff since the 80s, and he's written some of my favourite horror novels. Many of his creations have become fan favourites. His stories have spawned the insects from Shagai, Glarki and his revelations, the moon lens, Egolanak, and sinister locations such as Goatswood and the city of Brichester in the Seven Valley. While the Cthulhu mythos only makes up a small part of Campbell's fiction, this was what he actually started with. He sold his first mythos tale, The Tomb Herd, to Arkham House in 1962 when Campbell was only 16. 
He started corresponding regularly with August Derlith from the stage, and Derlith took on something of a mentoring role with him. Campbell's first book, The Mythos Collection, The Inhabitant of the Lake and Less Welcome Tenants, rolls off the tongue, was published by Arkham House in 1964. He was a teen when he wrote it, and it is less polished than his later work. Yeah, you, you can't hide that fact. Yeah, we were discussing this before we started recording it, and some of the stories in there are very rough some of them aren't i mean it seems like he found his voice part way through writing that book but yeah the earlier stories in there are very much lovecraft pastiches and probably shouldn't be he continued writing mythos fiction throughout the 1960s but he became disenchanted with lovecraft moving on to more experimental psychological horror campbell has occasionally returned to the mythos however for example, in 1980, he edited New Tales of the Cthulhu Mythos for Arkham House. Yeah, this was one of my favourite mythos anthologies when I started out reading mythos tales. And this, mm. more than any other book, really opened my eyes to what the scope of the mythos could be. Then in 1985, Screen Press published uh, Cold Print, which was the second collection of his mythos tales, reprinting some of the stories from Inhabitant of the Lake alongside other newer pieces. And then in 2001, he published his first mythos novel, The Darkest Part of the Woods, which is really quite creepy. In recent years, he made a major return to the mythos. As well as his novella, The Last Revelation of Glaki, he published a new trilogy of mythos novels, the Searching Dead, Born to the Dark, and The Way of the Worm, known collectively as The Three Births of Daeloth. His collected short mythos fiction is currently available in two volumes from PS Publishing, Visions from Brichester and The Inhabitant of the Lake. In this episode, we'll focus on two of his mythos deities, Daeloth and Ihort, looking at their origins in Campbell's fiction, their development in Call of Cthulhu, and how we might use them ourselves. As I mentioned, we'll return to Campbell later on and discuss some of his other creations, such as Golanak and Glaki. Let's take a look at Daeloth. You can make your D10-D100 sand check now. If you haven't already. <laughs> Daloth originated in Campbell's 1962 short story, The Render of the Veils, first published in The Inhabitant of the Lake. And I didn't realise until I was researching this episode that Daloth, well, and this story, obviously, were inspired by an entry from Lovecraft's commonplace book, which simply read... Disturbing conviction that all life is only a deceptive dream, with some dismal or sinister horror lurking behind. And I think we probably all had that thought at some stage, haven't we? Yeah, well, what is this disturbing conviction? It sounds more like fact. Yeah. This was the first Campbell tale not to read like a Lovecraft pastiche. Derleth didn't like it, calling it the weakest story in the book. Obviously, it does get reprinted in cold print, right? Oh, yes. I thought it stood up pretty well. I can see why they kept it into the next book, really. Yeah, absolutely. And Campbell wrote this when he was, what, 18 or 19? Dear God, if I think back to the kind of stuff I was writing when I was that age, having said that some of his early stuff was rough, I'm really impressed at how well some stories like this one do stand up, considering they were written by a teenager. I mean, it's almost like we were saying with Robert E. Howard before, that the kind of stuff that he was producing at a comparatively early age was, yeah, good. Mm. I'd almost hold that Durr that didn't like it as a badge of honour. So, yeah, it must be good. 
<laughs> the protagonist, Kevin Gilson, has a chance encounter with a fellow occult enthusiast named Henry Fisher. This is the weird kind of thing that happens when you decide to try and hitch a uh, taxi ride together in the rain. After the usual discussion of the Necronomicon, because boy, everyone's read that thing. Yeah. <laughs> Fisher offers to show Gilson some real magic. This takes the form of summoning Daloth. As you do. And particularly, you have to do it at just the right point in the morning at 2.45am. Mm. And so Fisher has this icon of Daloth in his flat. That's what he describes it as, this representation of the god itself. The object was not shapeless, but so complex that the eye could recognise no describable shape. There were hemispheres and shining metal coupled by long plastic rods. The rods were of a flat grey colour, so he could not make out which were nearer. They merged into a flat mass from which protruded individual cylinders. As he looked at it, he had a curious feeling that eyes gleamed from between the rods, but wherever he glanced at the construction, he only saw the spaces between them. The strangest part was that he felt this was an image of something living. Something from a dimension where such an example of abnormal geometry could live. Reading that, I kind of felt like this could be one of those devices that the great race of Yith use, but mm. not like linking people back to their former selves. Mm. It really does sort of capture a, a weird thing that, whilst you can't really think of something real that would look like that, it kind of gives me the feel that I am looking at something so strange. It, it, it captures it yeah. really well, I think. It's also, it strikes me, as being almost like a extrapolation of Yogg-Sothoth, where you've got the references to lines and curves in Dreams in the Witch House. Here you have something more tangible in three dimensions, rods and hemispheres. Mm. There seems to be that intrinsic link, bear in mind that, say, they both have a control over time and space. Well, it's not just in three dimensions, though, because he talks about not being able to tell which ones are nearer and further away and so on. And that does make me think of, for example, some of M.C. Escher's drawings, where he's playing tricks with two-dimensional perspective to represent three-dimensional objects. And here it seems to be like a three-dimensional object that's doing the same thing, well, or at least the representation of a three-dimensional object that's doing the same thing in four dimensions, or maybe more. Mm -hmm. This image has been very, very influential on me. I have written one scenario, for example, which pretty much takes place entirely inside such a structure. Fisher explains more about the god they are going to summon, and that they must do so in the dark. Daloth is a god, an alien god. He must never be seen, for the eye tries to follow the convolutions of his shape, and that causes insanity on Yogoth. And Tond, he's known as the Render of the Veils. And that title has a lot of meaning. There, his priests cannot only see the past and future, they can see how objects extend into the last dimension. Here we have the Render of the Veils, this idea that reality as we know it is a veil and that Deodoth somehow pierces this, tears away that illusion and shows us what lies beneath, which I think is a fantastically compelling idea. Mm. The summoning works and Gilson feels dry and possibly light things probing his face. Some people pay quite a lot for that, I hear. <laughs> the men agree to turn on the lights and rend the veil, seeing true reality for the first time. 
This, of course, drives them to madness and death. Shock. Horror. (laughs) The police detective investigating the incident plays back the tape they recorded of the summoning. My God, that thing is you, expanding, contracting, the primal jelly forming and changing, and the colour. Get away! Don't come any closer. Are you mad? If you dare to touch me, it may feel wet and spongy and look horrible, but it'll do for you. No, don't touch me. I can't bear to feel that. (laughs) Sounds like an average Friday night round here. (sighs) But I do like that idea that it's not just the visual aspect of it that terrifies them and drives them mad, but the fact that now they're perceiving reality as it is, these sort of hard, flat surfaces they saw, like the table in the room and so on, and their own bodies and so on, actually have different textures. Yeah, they make that point of saying, well, even if I can see true reality, why does my senses, when I touch this table, tell me exactly the same as what what I'm feeling Mm. or what I'm seeing? That was a nice touch, going back to that uh, perception is not just from what you see through your eyes. And I feel there's a bit of um, Crawford Tillinghast in here as well, mm. a little bit of a parallel with From Beyond, you know, seeing into the other world sort of thing and and, and that not turning out too well. <laughs> it never does, does it? <laughs> if you think about it, on the whole, Lovecraftian fiction does not reward intellectual curiosity. <laughs> well, no. Well, shall we move on to how Deoloth is represented in Call of Cthulhu? Yeah, I mean, he's one of the gods that does feature in the core rulebook. Mm. There's a lot of mythos deities out there, and we couldn't fit them all in the core rulebook, but both Deoloth and Ihor make the cut. There's also quite a few scenarios out there that feature him. I was quite surprised by how many, considering he's, he's almost got this perception of being quite a niche god in terms of what you can use him for. World War Cthulhu Cold War has a couple of instances of scenarios that feature him. One written by you, one written by me, Matt. Yeah, if only you should mention that. (laughs) But there's also some mentions for him in other books as well. You've got, uh, I won't give the individual scenario titles so they're not spoilers here, but at least interested GMs can go and track down the books if you want to have a look at the scenarios in there. So ones for your buying list out there. Unseen Masters, Minions, The Stars Are Right, and another one that we'll mention with iHort, Goatswood and other less pleasant places. And also there is a scenario in Fear Sharp Little Needles, which was written as a day loss scenario, but not published as one, because there was a change to the way that third-party licensing from Chaosium in relation to Ramsey Campbell's creations worked. But that book came out at a point where third-party publishers were suddenly no longer able to include the Campbell's stuff in there. And so that scenario was rewritten at the last minute and turned from a day-a-loss scenario into something that involved uh, the Phantom of Truth from The King in Yellow, which, yeah, I, I think still works. But if you know the scenario that I'm talking about and you encounter it at some stage and you fancy retrofitting it, you can always turn it back into a day-loss scenario if you want. <laughs> Just when the stars were no longer right. And in the Malice Monstrorum, we get descriptions and so on for Daeloth, and we also get Daeloth the Sacred Light, an avatar of Daeloth. And this avatar brings with it euphoria. If it touches you, it brings a sense of euphoria and fills the mind with knowledge. And then terror. <laughs> terror tends to follow knowledge, really, in, in the worlds of uh, Cthulhu, really. And it may turn a person into a splinter of Daeloth. What is a splinter of Daeloth, I hear you ask? 
Yeah, they're these wonderful folk. They're a bit like evangelists that turn up on your door, say, I will tell you the truth. I put my hand on your forehead. Now you doomed too. Yes. <laughs> I believe that's straight out of one of those scenarios that I mentioned in the list. Right. Yeah, that's where it comes from originally. That's interesting because I was unaware of that development, but I guess as a form of parallel development, did something very much like that in World War Cthulhu Cold War as well. And there is a, a similar sort of character in there, but perhaps with a slightly different take on that. From what I know or remember of that particular scenario, the individual in question still has a bit of personality, whereas the splinters are very much almost automaton-like, that they are driven by single purpose, that their job is to spread the truth. Ah, okay. They will seek out a particular target, lay their hands upon them, and bless them with knowledge that they really wish they didn't have. Yeah, this character in my scenario does something similar. He is very much about trying to reveal truths to people, but at the same time, he's also very keen on trying to create a manifestation of Daloth in front of as many people as possible by transforming an unwilling target into an avatar. Yeah, yeah, these are very much, they, they lack the personality and they are pretty much sole-purpose creatures at this point. But I think that's uh, an interesting thing to use because a cult is going to want to get hold of a splinter of Daloth mm-hmm. and to use it for their own ends, I think, because it, it can instill knowledge. And if you're able to um, train your mind to be able to deal with that, as, as these cults are purported to do, then through mental discipline, then they can kind of expose themselves to that light through the splinter of Daloth, through this, this person that's sort of possessed by it. Malleus has a great bit in there where it describes how potentially they could use such a being and essentially involves chain it up, throw it in a basement and very much treat it as a, a dangerous animal at arm's length. Mm. Kind of shove someone in there with a 10-foot pole. Don't get too close or you might end up in the next cell next door. But they have a somewhat finite lifespan when you do that because eventually the body will wither, rot and die mm. and then you've got to go find yourself another shard, another splinter to use but for all that horrible stuff there i think it's quite possible to create sympathetic cultists of deodoth because fundamentally this is potentially quite a noble pursuit you've got people who are trying to reveal truth trying to reveal the true nature of reality and this is something that mystics and religious figures over human history have tried to do Really, what they're doing here is is not something sinister or creepy. It's just that it turns out to be that just because of the nature of the truth that's revealed. Yeah, this is putting me in mind of Martyrs, the film that we talked about mm. in a previous episode. And the cult in Martyrs are very much about learning about this sacred light, if you like, for want of anything else better to call it. You know, this kind of afterlife or what happens after death or, you know, whatever that may be. They're method of doing it is is very different but getting a splinter of Daloth they are getting a person in that film and almost turning them into something else oh yeah absolutely in the way that they're exploiting someone this splinter of Daloth thing is a it's you know it's got quite a bit in parallel with that concept I think I think it's a lot you could do with that 
particularly with thinking of the the scenario I wrote that fe- that features Daloth, is I tried very much to feature the the cults that worshipped Daloth and was trying to learn from it as being very much an academic group. They didn't mm-hmm. have any hostile intent. There was no grand plan of destruction of mankind or anything else that you associate mm. with a lot of the other gods. They were playing with a very dangerous element that had the great chance of blowing up in their faces, but there was no inherently evil plan. They were very much a group that the PCs could could side with and actually get on with as a group that would help them. So, I mean, if you came across a cult like that, Matt, where they are kind of intellectual and they're not obviously evil characters, I know you as a player character would sort of think twice before you then kill them all. Oh, yeah. I mean, I wouldn't be killing them. I'd be asking, sign me up to your newsletter and membership form. I think after about five minutes, you'd just lock the door and like burn their house down. (laughs) But only after stealing all their books. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I was going to say, because especially some of the books that I gave them are pretty damn tasty. That's true. I mean, it's not just as a, an intellectual pursuit. I wrote a scenario which involved a, I guess, a cultist of Daedoth, and she called herself a high priestess, who basically had lived a life that had led to her being destroyed by lies and deception, her reputation destroyed, her career destroyed, and so on, and had just set out with this pathological determination to find truth in all forms and reveal it to others. And again, she saw this as a noble goal that just happened to destroy an awful lot of people in the process. There's a couple of other lines in uh, Malleus that caught my eye. If using human concepts for understanding, Azathoth might be considered the positive to Daeloth's negative, each cancelling one another out and maintaining some form of cosmic balance. It's not putting forward the argument that that's the case, but it's putting forward the argument that some people might see it like that in the, in the fiction. And so is this the idea that Azathoth's dream effectively is shaping our reality, is shaping the lie that we're living in and that Daedoth is stripping it away? Pretty much exactly that. Right. I draw more of a parallel, again, as kind of I used in my scenario with it, that it was more, there was an ideological conflict between Daedoth and Yogg-Sothoth. Not that the two gods are at each other's throat, but the cultists that worship the two gods are. Mm. But I'd never thought of the parallel with Azathoth, but it makes perfect sense now having read it in Malice. Mm. And we get an opposing line of thought suggests that Daeloth is somehow linked to Tindalos and may be an alternative manifestation of Mahithra, the Archlord of Tindalos. Mm. Which, given one of those scenarios in one of the books, also features that particular entity, the, uh, I can't remember what they call them now, the uh, Tindalosian Lord, Mahithra, let's say that Archlord, Figure, yeah, they're from the same book. Hmm. I think there is sometimes a challenge with some of Ramsey Campbell's deities in finding creative ways of using them, because unlike Lovecraft, who wrote entities like Azathoth and Yogg-Sothoth and Nialathotep and Shubnigarath as being vaguely defined, they're more presences in the background of stories, well, except for Nialathotep. They're more abstract in nature so as a result you can impose an awful lot of different meanings on them with campbell his deities tend to be much more defined and much more focused they serve a purpose in the story and you know defined in that respect now on the other hand i don't think that's a reason not to go against what's established because as we've said many times 
you know, canon really has no place in the Cthulhu mythos anyway. And yes, if you come up with things that contradict what's in these stories or in the Malleus or whatever, that's fine. You know, these are just different aspects that maybe people didn't understand before, or maybe what is the conventional wisdom in the Malleus is wrong and what's in your scenario is right. There's one thing that I think both, having, say, looked back at the stories that these both feature in, say, uh, The Render of the Veils and Before the Storm, that the one thing that I think you can play around with a lot more, rather than necessarily the god itself, is the environment in which they exist. Mm. With Daloth, you've got this almost throwaway passage, not passage, but a few paragraphs, where the occultist says, oh, I had to like pass up to the 25th dimension and then yeah, yes. the tw- yeah, and, and then I was in this wonderfully fantastic environment and they, uh, the people I met there gave me this representation that said, well, you need this to summon Daloth, but you can't find it on your Earth. And mm. think, yeah, there's, there's this wider, bigger universe that is hinted at that you could probably play around with more than the god itself. Mm. Yeah, I think you're right. The cultist in that story is perhaps... The interesting bit, or there's certainly a lot of interest in the in the that cultist's journey that is kind of hinted at. Like, how did he get a night gorge skull for one thing? Mm. <laughs> I want to know where that came from. It's not like he went down the local charity shop and picked it up there. Well, this was written in the 1960s, so it was before eBay. Maybe there was that little place, American Books, where you can pick up some very dodgy literature that they happen to be using it as a bookend or something. <laughs> yeah, for me. I'm less interested in the cosmology and more in the effects of Daloth. Where I've used them in scenarios before, and if I were to use them again, I'd be looking at the ways in which a limited exposure to the truths that he reveals, perhaps rather than the veil being rendered just glimpses behind or the effects of these truths, shape the minds and shape the realities of the people who encounter them. These changes in perception, these changes in consciousness, I think can lead to really quite interesting pathologies that you can have a lot of fun within in a scenario, much more so than just, you know, you see reality for what it is, you go completely mad and die. Sure, I mean, that's a good way of ending things, but it's fairly limited in what you can do with it. Mm. I mean, it does give there are options uh, it does give it in the book to say how you can potentially get around that i did use a kind of partial interpretation of that with one of my npcs in my scenario that you have to blind yourself to be able to stop seeing the truth yeah yeah there are ways out of it it's just there's quite a heavy cost to doing so mm. there's one of graham Walmsley's scenarios as well which does exactly that too with someone blind themselves because of that mm-hmm. yet somehow they can still see mm-hmm one scenario hook that occurred to me was uh, kind of riffing on the classic, and I will fight anyone who says it's not a classic, Halloween 3's Season of the Witch, hmm. where you perhaps have some toy manufacturer who's a cultist of Daloth, who started producing this sort of thing like Meccano or an Erector set or whatever, all these strange rods and joints and so on that kids are putting together in their bedrooms that seem to shift between different dimensions. And every time you look away and look back, it's a bit bigger and so on. And after one Christmas, and there's suddenly this spate of, of children just getting lost inside them and they're them consuming households and so on. I think you could have a lot of fun with that. 
I think there's a degree of that in the original Halloween 3 anyway. Oh, yeah. Whenever I hear London Bridge is Falling Down, I, I hear the true lyrics that uh, I will only <laughs> sing along to. Happy, happy Halloween, Halloween, Halloween. Silver Shamrock. Get ready for the big giveaway at nine. Part two, I Hort. If Daloth was a nice and fluffy individual for a god that didn't have any ulterior motive or didn't have any hatred of mankind, yeah, the pendulum swung completely the other way this time, didn't it? <laughs> well, maybe. I think we'll perhaps get into what Ihort offers, but yeah, I think there's perhaps some ambiguity there. Here's a bargain you can't refuse. <laughs> so Ihort, the god of the labyrinth, first appeared in Before the Storm. This was written in 1965 when the young Campbell worked as a clerk in the tax office in Liverpool. It wasn't published until 1985, however, when it appeared in Cold Print, his second collection of Mythos Tales. I really hope this is a fictionalised version of a true account because that's, that's the kind of thing that would definitely uh, kind of improve your day working in a tax office of all places. <laughs> Having had jobs where I've had to work in office dealing with the general public, yes, I could imagine like 90% of this is drawn from life. <laughs> so, in this story, an unnamed man stumbles into a tax office, funnily enough, as a storm gathers outside. He's lost and confused and obviously physically unwell. One of the clerks notes that the man's whole form was pale and greasily swollen with almost the fatness of a drowned corpse, and the bulging eyes were cracked by crimson veins. He seemed in the last stages of some foul disease. That kind of almost reminds me a little bit of some of the aspects of Yugolanak, so there's a little bit of a running mm. motif there. Certain bits of it, anyway. Definitely not the eyes, mm. that'd be a bit difficult for Yugolanak. As we shift back and forth between the man's perspective and the clerk's, we learn the man has joined an order called the society, and heard stories of a secret place, a labyrinth deep under a house where he could make a bargain. There he met Ihort. Then came pale movement in the wall, and something clambered up from the dark, a bloated, blanched oval supported by myriad fleshless legs. Eyes formed in the gelatinous oval and stared at him. It's a spider shoggoth. Yeah. That's what it is. It's a spider shoggoth. With lots of eyes. Yeah, we see a couple of illustrations of this dude in, uh, well, there's one in the core rule book, but there's an even, I would say, even uh, better one in Malleus. And like you say, definitely a spider shoggoth. As his mind and body disintegrate, the man scrawls a note to explain the bargain he made. Made bargain with Ihort, god of the labyrinth, gave me other lives. Life selling papers didn't matter because I could go into other bodies and leave mine behind to sell papers. But people told me I didn't know all about the bargain. Nobody made it anymore. And when they did, years after, uh, he'd, he'd use them to send his children into the world. Now I can't control places I go. When his servants die, they come into my body and make me go into theirs and die in their place. Got no control. His children will come through if you don't let me stay. Now, for me, 
that is the creepiest part of the story. I mean, we'll get on to the body horror aspect and the more visceral aspect of the bargain that he's made. But this whole idea of your body just getting hijacked every now and then when some entity elsewhere in the universe is about to die and doesn't want to live through it, that you, you, you suddenly swap places with them and just go through death after death in alien bodies in strange places, that has got to be one of the most nightmarish things imaginable. All the clerks in the office try to help the man, but he flees, believing them all to be minions of Ihort. Once he gets outside, the man suffers a terrible fate, as witnessed by the clerks. The man's face tearing, a rent appearing from temple to jaw, opening the cheek to hang revealed. For there had been no blood, only something pale as things that had never seen the sun, something that poured down the man's body, which collapsed like a balloon. Surely Robert could not have had time to see the flood separate into moving objects that rolled away down the stairs into the depths of the building. But that was the memory he always shrank from focusing, for some instinct told him that if he ever remembered clearly what he had seen, it would be something even worse than a swarm of enormous fat white spiders. Very wholesome. Mm. Ihort also gets a passing mention in the Franklin paragraphs from Demons by Daylight, although it also appears in Colprint as well. Yeah, just, but like one line that doesn't just talks about his brood being born by daylight uh it's it's like five words <laughs> no i meant the franklin paragraphs also appears in cold print oh yeah 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 sorry i Hort also gets a mention in the short story cold print mm-hmm. which is what confused me there if the death is violent then it is more difficult than ever for the soul to leave for his own safety the initiate must insist on cremation Otherwise, he will be hopelessly attracted back to Earth, and the burrowers of the core may drag off his body from the grave with him still in it for the Feast of Ihort. Which doesn't sound like a lot of fun, really. <laughs> Angry death's the last thing I want to do. So how is Ihort handled in Call of Cthulhu? Not very much. I was quite surprised that there's only three scenarios I could find that actually feature him. Mm. Um, again without spoiling what the scenarios are the books they appear in the things we leave behind the great old ones and again Ramsey Campbell's Ghostwood and other less pleasant places yeah I think Ihort is even more limited than Daloth in that respect because of the themes of Revelation and Daloth there are all sorts of cool things we can do with him there but Ihort is very very focused mm. There's some bits that I think didn't translate particularly well from the short story to the game mechanics, that this whole thing of being able to control seeing other times and places and spaces throughout the universe mm. doesn't really come across in the definition of Ihort's bargain in the mechanics in Malleus, that it's very much just a case of, hey, I've got hold of you, are you going to have an egg in you or am I going to bash you against a wall and kill you? And that's pretty much all it boils down to. Because, I mean, that's the whole point of it being a bargain, that you are getting something for it. You're getting all this experience of living other lives and travelling in other bodies throughout the universe, which, for a seeker after wisdom, has got to be fantastically appealing. It's just you're paying a terrible price for it. 
Yeah, no, that is completely bypassed in Malice. The only thing that harks back to it is, oh yeah, by the way, while you've got an egg inside you, whenever you dream, you get these weird visions that maybe give you a bit of mythos and maybe give you, uh, well, not maybe, they will give you quite a bit of sanity loss. You don't control them. It's just the GM throws shit at you and your sanity erodes as a result. There's very much, it's a passive, you're more of a victim in this than you are actually having some kind of active desire to have gone and sought out the bargain in the first place, which I thought was a real shame. Yeah. For all its lack, I think, in that respect, I think it did add some interesting other features that you could draw upon thematically or metaphorically tied to it. Now, I've not played the scenarios or two of the three scenarios. I mean, I've watched a playthrough of the third one of the other two scenarios I mentioned in that list. It may be that this comes from them. Like, as we found with when we talked about Daleoth, the Sacred Light very much came from one of the scenarios that was featured. Mm. And it's where it makes a tie between youth gangs and kids to being almost pawns of Ihort, that they could form cults, that it uses these groups to protect those that have got an egg inside them. And it's very much that kind of children aspect, because it's very much it's it's brood, it's mm. offspring that it's trying to get into the world so it can maybe get a foothold back here. I mean, you you could have lots of different interpretations as to why it's doing this and why it's letting its spawn run around and hide on Earth, foreshadowing the time when the stars are right, when it can finally get out of its labyrinth. It was a nice touch bringing kids in here because it's got that whole connection with offspring. Mm. It just seemed quite mm. a nice thematic thing to bring in. Well, it's, it's always disturbing when you've got kids running around with knives and got the village of the damned kind of motif there. Mm. And we get some description of the brood as well, don't we? Mm. These small, globular, pale white, grub-like or spider-like creatures. And um, how little damage they do as well, these brood, because they are <laughs> essentially um, quite ineffective little <laughs> things. In the core rule book, the brood over 1d10 minutes, a group of them could do one hit point damage to a defenseless target. <laughs> so if you're like staked down and can't move, they can do one hit point every like five or six minutes. That's a pretty slow death. But is there anything in either of the books that explains what these things might grow into? There is something you could say has been that they grow into one thing. It's more the fact that they act as one. That kind of riffing on what Paul just said, that you've got one single thing, yeah, you, you kind of pop it. It's a bit like that scene in The Mummy where the... Um, where the guy's smashing at a scarab beetle on the floor. Yeah, one on its own, not a problem. Then the 500 swarm him, and then it's a problem. <laughs> that very much they have to act as a group. But as a group, they could almost attempt to pass themselves off as human. Think basically like a whole bag of spiders inside a uh, like a skin balloon that they're walking around in <laughs> trying to preserve a semblance of humanity until that balloon kind of pops, and then, you, then you've got a problem. Well, that's a nice image, Matt. What was it? A bag of spiders in a skin balloon? Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure everybody would be fine with that. I'm sure I've met one on, on at least one occasion. <laughs> but I do like the idea that they might eventually grow into something. I'm not saying that mm. each one is going to grow into Ihort. It seems like these are hatchlings of some kind, like baby spiders that are going to grow into something significantly larger. Mm. Given the labyrinthine imagery of where Ihort is found. I'm sort of imagining something burrowing, potentially have 
you know, scenario riffing on something like uh, Stephen King's Skeleton Crew, where you've got a group of exterminators or group of people who've gone in to renovate an old property and found it riddled with these things like termites. And you've got some of these sort of creepy, pale, fleshy spider things. That's fine. But then as you go down deeper into the burrows that they've excavated under the house, then you find what it is they're growing into. Mm. And that's not good. That's not good at all. I remember the film uh, riffing on that graveyard shift. It was, uh, yeah, quite disgusting. Oh, yeah, it was graveyard shift, not skeleton crew. That's right, yeah, graveyard shift. You're absolutely right. There's two things I could pull out here for how to use it, and also one parallel that I was kind of going through my mind when I was reading it. That, again, you've got that extended universe that it mentions. You've got this labyrinth that can connect Mm. to different places and maybe different times, but primarily different places. I know that's been used in the gaming aspect before. Oh, yeah. Also, potentially, that if you do potentially refuse the bargain, get the slammed against the wall, as previously mentioned, and don't die, that you could wander off through that labyrinth and maybe find yourself somewhere else or potentially find yourself eating what's left there to survive and turning into something not entirely human. I would have thought that a location like that that stretches between dimensions and between worlds, possibly between times, would be a place that certain perhaps slightly less sane seekers after knowledge or or player characters might want to explore. Just as an aside, if you're looking for inspiration for that, there's an Adrian Tchaikovsky story I read recently in one of his novellas called Walking to Aldebaran, which actually postulates something very much like that. It's actually a sort of big damn object in space that's got all these labyrinths stretching off. But it is just like this labyrinth that stretches between worlds that does have things living in it. Mm. And yeah, I, I reckon if you wanted to do an iHort scenario like that, you could lift an awful lot from that story. I'm thinking of connections with other stories. The one that actually struck to mind for me, having run Burning Stars fairly recently, is The Star Pools by A.A. Atanasio mm. has this dark, lightless labyrinth where the protagonist meets an avatar of Nihilathotep. So this labyrinth motif, maybe it's the same place, maybe it's a different part of it, who knows? But yeah, it's just struck me as being something quite coincidentally similar in tone. What do we make of the fact that Daeloth is listed as an outer god, whereas Ihort is listed as a great old one. I honestly couldn't care. I've never bothered with any of those definitions, pay no attention to them mm. at all. Having gone through the Call of Cthulhu story and having it seemed like all the great old ones were locked away in their tomb in Relay, when you've got these creatures that suddenly appear in different parts of the planet in their own different prison-like environments, like you've got Glacky stuck in his crystal prison, you've got Ihort stuck in the labyrinth, I don't know, for me it seems like there's something else, that it just it's a convenient label to pin them as great old ones. They very much appear to have a physical substance. They are made of matter. They have a very definitive form, whereas the great old ones of the original story are very much these nebulous beings of something else. They're not necessarily matter. They don't have a defined form, and they are something wholly other. Whereas, yeah, these these seem to be maybe just alien gods, or they're even they're just aliens entirely. They might be just one of a, many, of a great myriad race out there. Yeah, it just didn't feel to fit the mould for a great old one for me. It's still something wholly interesting, but I don't think it maybe needs that label put on it. Mm. But also, I mean, Lovecraft used a lot of these terms interchangeably anyway and Mm. didn't really stick to firm definitions of them. So, yeah, I feel no compulsion to do so myself. Mm. Yeah, case in point, old ones, elder things, Mego, 
Yeah. Mm. It kind of strikes me that both of the deities, or great old ones, deities, Ihorton, Daeloth that we're talking about today, seem to have a lot to do with human perception mm. uh, and affecting human perception and manipulating it and so on. And I guess this just comes across from Campbell's, that's the kind of thing he likes writing. Yeah, this is one of the reasons why I particularly like Campbell's deities, in that they do interact on a human level, Mm. that they are gods that you can meet, that you can be affected by directly, rather than just, say, see them from a distance and go mad. They have specific impacts upon people's lives. And yeah, that I think is very, very inspirational from a gaming point of view, even if you don't use these particular entities, taking that approach and sort of thinking, right, this is how I want to fuck with the character's life. Here's a concept for a god that can do that. Actually, that that kind of lends weight thinking of uh, the comment you made earlier about them being basically a spider shoggoth. He's pretty much got the same sanity loss for a Shoggoth as well, D6, D20. Mm. So seeing him isn't anywhere near as bad as seeing Daloth. Out of all the entities in the Cthulhu mythos, I think Daloth is the one where I absolutely buy the idea of a D100 sand loss. Going back to this idea, though, of the bargain, this body hopping and seeing other other lives, other worlds, and so on. Even if you don't have a player character going through that, and I think it's an interesting thing perhaps for a player character to go through, but it'd be a very difficult thing to actually play out in game and keep interesting. Certainly encountering an NPC who's been through a lot of that hasn't perhaps got to the stage where they're being consumed inside. But perhaps they've got information they can recount about other worlds, they've written things. This is a great way I would have thought of bringing in wider elements of the mythos, a pretext for explaining, say, what's going on on Yagoth to an investigator group. Mm. Funny as you mentioned, it might be a bit difficult to do that. I think that is actually the the major hook of one of those scenarios that you start off, unknowingly so, but you start off by uh, actually having had an egg put in you and then slowly remembering it over the course of the scenario. Oh, sure. But I think the egg hatching within you and being consumed by them and so on, yeah, I mean, is a nice gross image, but Alien did that 40 years ago and Mm -hmm. did it pretty well. That bit is, I'd say, the less interesting part compared to these out-of-body experiences and what they bring. Of course, you got a close second with that wonderful classic Spaceballs. Oh, no, not again. Okay. You haven't seen that? I watched 10 minutes of Spaceballs and decided I wanted to stop hurting myself. There's a great comedy moment in the bar where they've got John Hurt in there as someone at the bar who then starts throwing up. Promptly, it bursts out of his chest. He looks down at it and goes, oh, no, not again. And of course, his uh, <laughs> head lolls back before it starts singing uh, Hello, my honey, hello, my darling, hello, my ragtime girl, as it uh, dances down the bar. Well, I think we might as well leave it there. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to the good friends of Jackson Elias. You can find show notes for this episode at blasphemoustomes.com, where you will also find links to all our social media presences. We have t-shirts and other merchandise available at our Redbubble store. And if you're enjoying the show, please consider backing us at patreon.com slash goodfriendsofjacksonelias. We offer a variety of 
interesting rewards to our backers, so please do check that out. Thank you for listening. Well, it is that time once again when we would like to say thank you to people. Thank you, first of all, to you for listening to the podcast. Thank you to anyone who has ever backed us on Patreon. And we have a number of new people to thank personally now. Yep, a uh, big thanks going out to Zustash. And thank you very much to Brock Birch. And thank you very much to Yoshi. And thanks to Death by Iowa. <laughs> That's a great name. And also thanks to Raging Swan Press. Because, yeah, be careful of those Raging Swans. They're also deadly. Not as deadly as Iowa, but still pretty deadly. And thanks to Russ Townsend. And thank you very much to Jim Calabrese. Okay, well, that wraps it up for Daloth and iHort. You say that, but I'm sure they'll be visiting some of our listeners before the week's out. Well, indeed. Now that we've planted the thought eggs in their heads. And they've heard the truth. You've been listening to the good friends of Jackson Elias, and if you enjoyed the show... Please do head on down to your local podcast supplier and leave a review. Or um, come on to our website, blasphemoustomes.com, where you can find notes about this show and lots of other things, including links to our merchandise, our Patreon account, all sorts of wonderful things. And if you have enjoyed it, please tell other people. And if you really hated it, tell people you didn't like, but tell them it was good, and then they might not enjoy it either. Perfect. Perfect. That's marketing, right? We can be your petty revenge. Well, until next time, it's a goodbye from me. And cheerio from me. And farewell from me. Hello? BlasphemousTomes.com The other thing I like about these two, they're next to each other in the rule book, D and E.